clearly there's a message that we proclaim that to some people it just sounds absolute foolishness. And yet it's the wisdom of God and it's the cross of Christ and it's the hope of the world. And that's where we put our trust. So we're going to be looking at the, the word of God proclaimed in the Old Testament and looking at that theme of hope. And one of the things we want to do is think, do I take the word of God seriously? When I hear God's word, do I just take it for granted? What a privilege we have of being able to hear the word of God and know that it's the wisdom of God and the hope of the world. And that's where we live. I do want to say, uh, as always, it's a joy to be able to be with you now and to uh, be able to worship with you. I, I'm one of those few people that have the privilege of being in every worship service at Subi Church, and it's always a joy, and it's a joy to be with you this day as well. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer. I do want to highlight, as we've uh, done in the past, hour of prayer, really important hour of, of looking at the world around us. And the call of Christians is to pray, and let's do that together. And so even if you haven't participated in the past, don't worry, you won't be put on the spot, but what you will do is you'll be blessed as we pray with one another. I'm always blessed at that hour, and so I want to invite you to be a part of that this Wednesday night. And uh, we want to be praying again for peace in Ukraine with Russia. We are aware, again, the threat of nuclear weapons in our day, and it seems to be unthinkable. Perhaps we've become, gone beyond that. Aren't we wise enough not to do that? And yet, that threat is here today, and we need to be in prayer. I was watching the uh, U.S. news uh, from last night in, um, in America. They were even talking about the floods in Melbourne. So we need to pray for those people in Melbourne who are suffering. And just, again, pray for this state, for this nation, for our world. We want to pray for our, our church. And again, we are in a time of uh, transition. We are aware of that, and I'm a part of that. But we delight that God is with us, and that's what we need to do, is recognize he is with us, and we will pray. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. I'm going to give you a moment to pray silently, and then I want to lead you. Father, our hope is in you. We trust in you. We trust in your word and the revelation of Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God, the love of God, our hope and salvation. Father, I pray that you would help us even now to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, we pray that as we look at your word, and in particular this portion from the Old Testament, that you would strengthen our faith and our hope in you. Lord, we, we put our trust in you, and yet we are called as followers of Jesus Christ to be active in prayer, to watch and pray. And so, Lord Jesus, we long for your return, and we look forward to that day. And until you come, we will pray. Father, we want to pray for our world. We pray once again as we pray each week for peace in Ukraine. And as we've been praying in recent weeks, we pray that there would be no use of nuclear weapons, that somehow, God, in your grace, in your wisdom, that you would resolve this conflict. 
Father, we also pray for our nation. We pray for those who are going through times of disaster and distress, loss. We pray for wisdom for our politicians and leaders. Father, we pray for this church, and we pray that as we are in a process, in a journey of faith, that you would guide and direct us. You have been faithful to us in the past. We acknowledge that, and we praise you for it. And you will be faithful to us in the days ahead. And we just pray that we would live and walk by faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at the life of Elisha. And we're looking at this theme of taking God seriously. And what I want to do is focus in on hope, but remind you that our hope is when we put our trust in God's word, his revelation to us. Let me begin with this story. This is one I've used before, but I love this story. It's a story about a man named Donald Gray Barnhouse. I'm going to show you his picture. So he was a very famous pastor in America, 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, but very well-known radio pastor, and he went to Princeton Seminary. And one of his lecturers, one of the top scholars in that day at Princeton, was a man named Robert Dick Wilson. And he tells a story, Barnhouse tells a story, of when he went back to Princeton, he was invited to speak at chapel. And his former lecturer, Robert Dick Wilson, came and he sat down and he listened to the sermon. And afterwards, the lecturer, Robert Dick Wilson, comes up to him and he says, now just so you know, I only come to hear my students once, just one time, and then that's it. And he said, when I come to hear you preach, I'm just listening for one thing. Is this man a big godder or a little godder? Now, Barnhouse asked for an explanation. I'm going to quote here. When Barnhouse asked for an explanation, Wilson replied, well, some men have a little god, and they're always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. He can't take care of the inspiration and transmission of the scriptures to us. In other words, we stand over in judgment on this word because God's not able to care enough to give his authoritative word. He doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. They have a little God, and I call them little godders. Then there are those who have a great God. He speaks, and it's done. He commands, and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of those that fear him. You, he speaks to Barnhouse, have a great God, and he will bless your ministry. Now, put yourself in that uh, situation right now. Do we, as Subi Church, do we have a great God who will bless our ministry? Do we have a great God who is able to look after those who fear him. And as we've said, don't be afraid of that word. We're not talking about being afraid of God. Fear God means L-O-T, lot, love him, obey him, trust him. It's that relationship that we have with God that is that loving relationship, that obedient relationship, and that trusting relationship. And those that have that relationship knows that he is able to show himself strong on our behalf. This is hope. This is how we want to think about our God and how we want to think about our future. Future is our hope, as I've said in the past, is hope is that 
faith, but it's faith in future, future promises, promises that have not yet been fulfilled, and yet we believe them to be true because we are big otters. When God makes promises, do we cling to them? When God makes promises, do we put our hope in them? Is he able to take care of them? We're going to deal with the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, and there's a siege going on. So the capital is Samaria. And the, the whole army of the Arameans is going to come, and they're going to surround Samaria, and it's going to be under siege. And it's going to be under siege for a long time. Is God able to help? Is he a big God or a little God? Will we listen to the word of God? Will we trust God's promises? Or will we be little godders? Look with me at 2 Kings chapter 6, beginning verse 33. And I'm just going to pick up the story kind of in the middle of the siege. And there's been some real problems, and we're going to deal with how, how deep this siege is in just a few moments. But I'm going to pick up the story with the king coming to Elisha, and the king is going to blame the messenger. He's going to blame Elisha. So beginning verse 33, and I'll read just through chapter 7, verse 2. Elisha, that you stand, if you are able, and hear the word of the Lord. While he was still talking to them, the messenger came down to him. The king said, this disaster is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Elisha replied, notice these words here, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow, a sea of the finest flour will sell for a shekel, and two seahs of barley will sell for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. The officer on whose the arm the king was leaning said to the man of God, that's Elisha, look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of heaven, could this happen? The implication of, that's impossible. It couldn't even possibly be thought. Elisha says, you will see it with your own eyes, answered Elisha, but you will not eat any of it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Three points I want to make from this passage. First, hope comes from taking God's word seriously. If you want hope in your life, if you want hope in our world, it means you take the word of God seriously. So the context is really important because we're, we're in ancient Israel, but it's a time of famine and siege. The king says this disaster has come from God. Uh, he's going to blame Elisha probably because he's basically going to say, I want Elisha's head on a platter. And here's the reason why. It's likely that Elisha had announced that the siege was a judgment of God. So Elisha proclaims that. The king's now going to blame God and going to blame Elisha. I just want you to know how serious this siege was. This is, uh, as you know, in the ancient world, walled cities. How do you defeat them? The army comes and camps around them. They put them under siege until they just, um, they just basically... Uh, make sure that they are not able to eat, drink, whatever it is, but they just starve them out. So 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 24 and 25, give us the, the extent of the siege and what it's meaning there. 
Sometime later, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mobilized his entire army, so I want to highlight, his entire army, and marched up and laid siege to Samaria. There was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter of a cab of seed pods for five shekels. Now, that last verse I just read may not mean a whole lot to you right now, but we're going to explain it in just a moment. But some of you, you might pick up on the, the uh, nuance there. But 80 shekels of silver is nearly a kilo of silver, okay? So just with that in mind, 80 shekels of silver, nearly a kilo of silver. And what you would get for a kilo of silver is a donkey's head. Now, Chin talked about fine dining. You heard that earlier in the communion talk, fine dining. I don't know about you, but I've never gone out to eat with my wife or anybody else and said, I'll have the donkey. I mean, that's just not, I mean, the donkey's just not on the menu. It is not fine dining. Now, when you think about a donkey, if you had to eat donkey, what part do you want to eat? Not the head, not me. So you got the ears, the nose, the eyes, the brain, the tongue. It's not of interest to me. Would you pay a kilo of silver for a donkey's head? Well, that's what it costs for the donkey's head. That's how severe the famine was in that day. Now, there's a, a quarter cab of seed pods. And, and I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm using the NIV. At the bottom, it said these seed pods could be dove dung. So. How much do you have to pay? So 100 grams of dove dung. What do you have to pay? Five shekels. That's about 68 grams of silver. So that dove dung, which is probably just used to light a fire, that is almost worth its weight in, not gold, but silver. I mean, you realize how valuable just any little thing is, and silver and gold lose their value in this great time of famine. That's how severe it was. There was cannibalism going on. The king hears about that. And notice his thread in chapter 6, uh, verse 31. He says this, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if the head of Elisha, son of Saphath, remains on his shoulder today. In other words, Elisha, God's servant, is going to die for this. Someone's going to pay. He can't attack God, but he's going to attack God's servant. And then... Here's the king's declaration at the end of verse 33. The king said, this disaster from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? I'm just going to kill Elisha. So his life is at threat just for being a prophet of God. Elisha's response, and this is important to us, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. God's going to speak into this situation, and this is what you need to know. Just the voice of God through the prophet he says this, tomorrow, Asiya, now, what's that? About 5.5 kilos of the finest flour will sell for one shekel. Less than a, a half an ounce of silver. Just one shekel. Now, remember, we talked about, you know, five of those shekels. That would buy the, the dove dung. And 80 would buy the the donkey's head. But now one is going to buy not just flour, the finest flour, 5.5 kilos of it. And he says, if you want two silos of bar barley, sias of barley, 
you can get that for one shekel as well. So somewhere between nine and 10 kilos of barley is going to sell tomorrow for what? Just for just one shekel. Uh, what I find is interesting is when the prophet speaks, it's very specific, don't you notice that? He's given exact prices. Here is the price of what you're going to see tomorrow at this time. This is the word of the Lord. You've got to hear the word of the Lord. Let me go over to uh, 2 Peter chapter 1 and just look at a couple of verses because uh, Peter's going to reflect on these prophecies and the words of God from the prophets in the Old Testament, verse 19. He says, we also have the prophetic message as some, uh, something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. This is not just wishful thinking Elisha's giving. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What's happening here? Elisha is being carried along by the Holy Spirit, speaking the word of God into a very desperate and dark situation, and he speaks hope. The question is, will we listen? Will we hear it? Do we believe it? Is it too good to believe? Though the king's right-hand man says this, even if the Lord should open the floodgates, even if God himself were to open the floodgates of heaven, not going to happen. What do we call that guy? A little godder, right? I mean, whatever thing he thinks of God, his God is really small. He's a little godder. So he dismisses the word of God, and the promises of God are totally denied. Can't happen, won't happen, impossible. Elisha says, you'll see it with your own eyes, but you won't eat any of it. Again, very clear. You are going to see it. You just won't taste any of it. It begs a question for us. When we hear the word of God, when we listen to God's word, God's revelation to us, do we just blow it off? And that, well, that's kind of nice. Oh, yeah, so what? Not going to happen. Whatever we want to say, do we take it seriously? That's the question. Because if we don't take it seriously, what hope do we have? Do we think, as some people think, the promises of God are outdated? Jesus' promise to return is too long in coming, it's outdated, it's irrelevant to the modern world. Let me talk with you about the Australian census that we saw recently, this year. So the Australian census, as it relates to religion, and I think we have a slide on that, um, the results were released in Ju uh, July. The category of greatest increase as it related to religious preference was no religion. That was the greatest increase in any category. 38.9% up from 30.1% in 2016. So you think about it, you walk around Australia, nearly 40%, nearly 40%, four out of 10 people basically are saying, I have no religion. I ticked that box, no religion box. And I'm calling that the no hope box. Because quite frankly, there's no God no religion, no hope, no voice of God, no hope for the world apart from God's revelation. What we have right now in Australia, and I think we're seeing this around the world, but, not, but here in particular, where we want to raise our concern, 
is what I'm going to call that famine. And it's a famine not for food and water. It's a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. Because if that survey, that census is true, and people voluntarily put that, tick that box, there are so many people who are not hearing the word of the Lord in this country right now. Look over at the, uh, the great pro uh, prophet Amos. In Amos chapter 8, verse 11, and I, I love this minor prophet, minor not because he's insignificant, but because he just didn't write as much, but he says this, the days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. We're here. It's here right now. We need to be aware of that. We need to be keeping on our knees praying for revival in this country. The statistics are not going the right way, in my opinion. People are not hearing the word of God. In fact, they didn't even want to hear the word of God. I want to talk just briefly, and, and I'll share later on, um, beginning of November, I'll share a little bit more about this, but... Uh, and I haven't talked much about it, and the reason is because our main focus right now as a church family is what God has for this church. But I want to talk a little bit about what God has for me. So I'll be stepping down from the role I have at Subi Church at the end of November. So that's, that's already there. Some say, you know, they keep using the word retirement and a lot of other things. No, here's what I am. I am a shepherd. I am a pastor. That's what I do. That's what I've been doing for 37 years. And what I intend to do is continue to be a pastor, not of a local church, but to try to shepherd and pastor pastors and other Christian leaders. And here's the reason why God has put that on my heart, because we are in a country, in a land, where it's very easy to get discouraged and it, it breaks my heart, but all too often, people in ministry have worked hard to become a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then they get discouraged, and then they burn out, drop out, wash out, whatever it is, but part of my passion is this, I want them to persevere. And if I can help them, if I can help them through any experience I've had, through any wisdom that I've gained over the years of serving the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what I want to do. Look over at uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Just a great passage. I, I cling to this verse myself. Therefore, Paul says, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I'm telling you, we have an enemy who wants to discourage ministers of the gospel in Australia and say, your work is in vain. Look at the census. It's not happening for you. Look at the numbers going down. And yet, the Bible, God's word tells me and you, when you labor in the Lord, it is not in vain. And we persevere and we do not give up. We keep going. So the ministry that I'm going to be in is Sparrow, S-P-E-R-O, Ministries, and it's incorporated, but, but Sparrow Ministries. The word is Latin word, and it means what? I hope. It's that hope in God, hope in the gospel, 
and that hope that we can make a difference in our world and we do not give up. Hope comes from taking God's word seriously. That's our message. Here's the second point. God uses his own means to bring mercy. So we're in the midst of a siege and famine here. And you think, how in the world could God solve a problem? How can this prophecy of Elisha become true? So look at verse 3 of chapter 7. Now there were four men with leprosy. Isn't it interesting how this is beginning? Four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say, we'll go into the city, the famine is there, and we will die. Notice the end always seems to be with us dying. And if we stay here, we will die. So let's go, and if we stay here, right where we are at the city gate, we will die. So let's go to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. And if they spare us, we live. If they kill us, then we die. I mean, it's always kind of death. But basically, he's saying, if we stay here, certain death. We go into the city, certain death. But maybe if we surrender, well, it's unlikely, but we might live. So that's what they do. At dusk, they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans when they reached the edge of the camp. No one was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army. So that they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittites and the Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys and they left their camp and as it was and ran for their lives. The man who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp, entered one of the tents, and ate and drank. <laughs> then they took silver and gold and clothes and went off and hid them, and they returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and hid them also. And they said to each other, what, what we're doing here is not right. This is the day of good news. We're keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. So they went and called out to the city gatekeepers and told them, we went to the Aramean camp and no one was there, not a sound of anyone, only tethered horses and donkeys, and the tents left just, and the tents left just as they were. The gatekeepers shouted the news and it was reported within the palace. So God's going to use these lepers who basically reason, we're about to die. Why don't we just go surrender? Uh, they go, and what do they see? Everything's left behind, everything. Because God, according to his scripture, says, God put the sound of an army coming, and they just left. I mean, they didn't want to take the horses or donkey. They just left them tethered. Basically, they're saying, those guys, uh, the fact is, we may need to hide quickly. We may need to hide behind rocks. We don't want anything holding us back. We are just going to get out of here. And in fact, even as they're running off, they're throwing off bits of clothing and armor and everything else because they're just trying to get out of there. And they left everything that they had in the tents. It's all there. All the food, all the silver, all the it's all there. Now, let me just... Um, Go back. I, I read a book a number of years ago. It's a, a great book on the American Civil War, which most of you probably not interested in, but I, I wanted to read it. And um, it was called Battle Cry of Freedom. And at one point, the author points out that an army of 100,000 men, again, this is before modern armies, but an army of 100,000 men required 2,500 supply wagons daily, including supplies of animals, and they consumed 600 tons of supplies each day. 
Now, I want you to think about the entire army of the Arameans are there camped around them. The entire army. Let's say it's only 10,000 people, but you still have these horses and donkeys. And for them to eat, they're going to need 60 tons a day. I figure they eat about the same. And I would put it this way. My guess is, knowing our God, he waited until those supplies were topped up, okay? So all the supplies for the Aramean army are now topped up, and they just leave them all. Every bit of it, every bit of it is gone. And we're talking about tons and tons and tons and tons of supply, and they're all right there, right outside the gate where the army was. Verse 15, they found the whole road strewn with clothing and equipment. And then verse 16, then the people went out and plundered the camp. The result, a sea of the finest flour was sold for a shekel, and two seas of barley were sold for a, a shekel. Where have we heard that before? Isn't that amazing? This is exactly what happens. God, God's means of bringing mercy to us. It may not be the wisdom of this world. It may not be how we would think about it. It may not be how you and I would do it. But here's God going to use four lepers who figure we're going to die anyway, might as well. And then he uses the sound of chariots and horses and army to chase off the Aramean army. They're no longer a threat, but they leave everything behind. Everything. And now the prophecy of Elisha is going to come true within a day. How does God... Bring mercy on us. I'm going to go back to that passage that we heard read from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. I find this fascinating, but I'm going to just pick it up in verse 22 again. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. In other words, there's a thing that a world says, this is what we expect. This is how we expect God to work. But we, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Now, you're in one of those categories, by the way. But to those whom God has called, I hope that you're in that category, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. That's our God. He's a big daughter. We serve a big God. So when God speaks amazing promises to us in the gospel, they're true. When God provides salvation, he's going to do it through his servant, our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Christ's death on a cross, through his weakness on a cross, his death, we gain forgiveness of sins and everlasting life through the power of his resurrection. He's an amazing God, and he uses means that we may not expect. And people think, oh, that's foolishness. That's silly. A man rises from the dead. Somehow Jesus' death 2,000 years ago can provide for my salvation. Yes, that's the promise of God. That's our hope. It's the wisdom of God. One final point. When we deny God's promises, we miss out on the blessing. So let me pick the, the story up now in verse 17, and you're going to see uh, how this story ends. 
Now the king had put the officer on whose arm he leaned, his right-hand man, in charge of the gate there in Samaria. The people trampled him in the gateway, and he died, just as the man of God had foretold when the king came down to his house. It happened as the man of God had said to the king, about this time tomorrow, a sea of the finest flour will sell for a shekel and two seas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. The officer had said to the man of God, look, even if, God, if the Lord should open the floodgates of the heavens, could this happen? The man of God had replied, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat any of it. And that's exactly what happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gateway, and he died. It's probably not a big surprise that people are crowding to get out of that gate. And he, um, the king puts him, his right-hand man, at the gate. And that guy sees it. And he sees what's going on, and he sees that, you know, the reason why that, that finest flower is worth so little right now is because all you have to do is go out and plunder. I mean, I guess it's the lazy people that are paying a, you know, a shekel of silver for it. The rest of them are just going out and getting it for free. But you see what's going on there, but he sees it with his eyes. He never eats it. He never tastes of the blessings of God. The little daughter gets trampled and the end of the story, and he died. The principle remains true today. You deny God's promises, you miss out. That is a fact. You deny the promises of God, you miss out. I'm going to go to John chapter 11, and I just want to give you one example. John chapter 11. In John 11, Jesus said to her, this is Martha, the sister of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live. That's a promise. Even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. That's a promise. Do you believe this? He asked Martha. By the way, I'm, I'm, that text is special to me because I, I've used it recently. I got to speak at my mother's memorial service last month, and I'm using that text. My mother's name is Martha as well, by the way. But I'm using that text. And the reason is because my mama was a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and what comes to me is this. Do I really believe that to be true? That the one who puts their hope and trust in Christ, that Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you will never die. And death itself is it's not a hiccup. It's just like blinking your eyes. It's, it's just there, and now you're, now you're alive with God. Those who die will live. Do you believe this, Jesus asked. Well, I spoke those same words earlier this year as well at uh, one of our, our elders' services, at Gordon Jennett's service. I served with him for years and gave John 11. And you have to think, do you really believe that? Is that really true? Earlier during the COVID period, I spoke those same words at another service, Joseph Tan, a longtime chairman of our elder board. Do you believe this? Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and life. Do you believe? Is your hope in those promises? And earlier, years earlier, right here, I spoke those words at my brother Graham's service. And so you don't look at these and just say, oh, that's, that's just you know, meaningless words. Do they mean hope to you? Is that your hope? That's your trust? 
When we deny God's promises, we miss out on his blessings. That's why Jesus is saying, you, re- you realize these are promises I want you to believe because I want you to have them. But these promises confront my faith whenever I face death of those that I love. It confronts my faith. Do you believe this? And Jesus makes himself the focal point. These are amazing claims. Death is a reality. I see it, but it's like a blinking of the eye. It's there, and it's gone, and now there's life. And death immediately gives way to life. That person will never die. I want to go back and just finish up with 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Because I find this to be an amazing passage. This is what the Apostle Paul says. As surely as God is faithful. Our message to you is not yes and no. That seems to be a bit ambiguous. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been, what's the word? Yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, you number them all, you count them up, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ, and so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. What are we saying? God makes his promises in his word. He speaks, we listen, and we are big godders, and he makes these big promises to us. And Jesus says, I'm going to fulfill all those promises. They're all yes in me. And we, as God's people, say what? Amen. Let's say it together. We as God's people say what? Amen. Pray with me. Father, we do thank you for the fact that you are a saving God, a gracious God, a merciful God. You you know our needs. And you are a God who can meet every one of them. Nothing's too hard for you. Lord, sometimes we live and we recognize we live in a world that doubts you and doubts your word. Help us not to go there. Help us to look to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us to look to Jesus Christ, our hope. Help us to look to Jesus Christ, who is the one who says yes to every promise you make. And we will trust in you. We pray this in Christ's name.